Uh, please start by opening your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. Um, if you recall what we're doing over the past few weeks and then going into the next several weeks, we are doing a series through some of the major topics of the Statement of Faith, trying to hit some of the highlights, some of the major points. And um, Bob asked me this week to preach on the Trinity. <laughs> so, um, yes, it's no small task. Because um, really, I was thinking about it as I was studying this week, to truly explain the Trinity, to, to explain it, to get through all the passages pertaining to God, you kind of need to look at the whole Bible. And we're not going to get to do that. <laughs> um, so the Trinity. That our God is three in one is a statement that you've probably heard pertaining to the Trinity, um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now before we dive into these passages, I kind of I want to address three possible errors or kind of hindrances in your mind that might get in the way um, before in, in this. And I'll give you some short, like kind of three objections that I've kind of heard in general. I'll give three short answers to it, and then hope that the rest of the sermon will kind of answer the rest, you know, answer those questions more fully. So the first kind of hang-up that people have with the Trinity is to say that the Trinity is so complex that we'll never understand what's going on in the Godhead, so don't even try. Okay, so I'll grant it. It's complex, yes. It is, it is a, a complicated thing, but the don't even try part, that's, that's why I think we have an issue, because the answer really is, if God has revealed himself that way, if God has told us about himself, then, first of all, it's knowable. God doesn't tell you something and it's not knowable, okay? Now, it may be a little incomprehensible, like, I don't know how this all fits together, but it is knowable, that you can make a definitive statement of what it means that God is one and God is three, okay? But you try to, like, say, how does this work? Okay, now that, I, I grant you, is a little bit hard. In fact, when someone says they've got it, like, I totally, under, I totally know how God is three and one, like, the best you can do is say what Scripture says and stop right there. Say what Scripture says and stop, and that's always the safest. The second error, I think, the thing that hold up, the hold up is that that the Trinity is kind of some esoteric doctrine, just like head in the clouds, like just this really obscure thing. It's not really a big deal, and it really has no benefit to actually try to dig down deep and try to figure out what's going on. And I'll kind of answer it the same way: God revealed it, and if God revealed it, it must be important. In fact, the fact that when we study doctrine that God has revealed in his word, and it kind of bores you, it's like, eh, ho-hum, okay? It probably says more about us than it does about God. It probably says more about us than it does about the doctrine itself. And the fact that you think that has little bearing on your life, again, probably says more about us as fallen creatures, rebellious, kind of that little rebellious streak in us. Um... It's, it's actually really interesting. I was looking, when I was studying through church history, the Trinity was a huge deal. And it seems like it's in the 20 and 21st century that the Trinity has kind of gotten the, kind of scooted to the side. It's like, eh, not a big deal. And, it, and, it's, and it's actually something that's starting to be reclaimed a little bit. I've noticed a lot more writing about it and talking about it and songs about it and singing about it. But you'll definitely notice, if you even look at, like, hymns, hymns talk about the Trinity all the time. You look at modern praise songs and not so much although that is changing. Sometimes I think when it's important 
when God reveals himself, that you take him at his word and say, okay, if, if God says something about himself, I need to understand it. Because on, on, the, on the far end, if you're just completely ignoring what God says about himself, but you're worshiping God, you're, you're bordering on idolatry. That you're making a God in your own image. Like, this is the God I worship. This is him. And, then, but, and you say, well, no. No, he's not this way. Um, you know, God is only Jesus. That's kind of something that's big in America. God, there's only Jesus. He's the, he's, that's it. There's no other three persons. And it's like, no, no. It's, the Bible says a lot more than that. You can't, and you're making a God in your own image because it makes you comfortable. Or maybe, well, I shouldn't get into their hearts and heads about why they're saying that. But, and we'll get into that a little, bit, a little bit more. Sometimes we act like insufferable teenagers who think they've got their parents figured out. Right? You're like, I totally know about my parents. And you get your 20s, you're like, oh, my goodness, I had no clue. My parents aren't parents. My parents are people, right? And so it's kind of so, like, that's, that's a small analogy for what it is like with God, that you think you've got God all figured out. And I, oh, no, I totally know what you're talking about, God. And you, and you hit a scripture about God that you've heard a thousand times. Like, yeah, 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 I know what you're talking about. And then it just kind of sinks in what God's really saying about himself. And you say, oh, oh. So sometimes the Trinity can be that way. And the, and the last thing to say is, some people get hung up that Trinity is not a word in the Bible. And it's kind of this doctrine that came about because the Western church got all philosophical and had all these fights, and the next thing you know, this word Trinity popped out of it. Um, and usually this objection comes out because um, the, as a church was kind of, and I'll even say this, kind of, kind of finding their, figuring it out. Because God gave the information, and there's like, does he mean this? No, he doesn't mean that. Does he mean this? Like, well, I think so. And, so, and then they, they have these, then they write down these creeds and say, this is, you know, this is what the church says. This is the orthodox statement about the Trinity or about Jesus or about... And they write down these creeds and they say, see, it's just man-made stuff. Okay? And that's a very skewed and cynical way of interpreting history, the history of the church. Um, in the first centuries, actually, no, I should... In the first centuries, you, you see this laid out clearly, but it's still happening today, that the church is persecuted in two ways. The church is persecuted physically... And socially, so you believe in Jesus and we'll kill you or we'll ostracize you from our community. And the church has also um, been persecuted through false doctrine. The false doctrine gets in the church and distracts you against the true gospel. You see this clearly already in the New Testament, that by the later books that are written, like the first John, John's already having to combat the, these ideas about Christ that were just bogus. And he says, no, that if you believe this, that's not the gospel. And even Paul was dealing with false gospels. So, so the fact that false doctrine gets in the church, that is a form of persecution, that that's the spirit of the Antichrist getting in the church and trying to knock us off course. And so in the, in the first round of Christian persecution, it was doctrinal. Well, after the New Testament, there was physical and then there was doctrinal. And then there was a huge wave of false doctrine that came in in the 280s. And then the 380s, the Roman try to kill all the Christians, so that was physical. And then, and later they picked it up, and on the, kind of the third round, it was doctrinal again, that there was a huge debate regarding the Trinity. And it, and it all got resolved, and, it, and the church as a whole was happy, and so they wrote down a statement, this is what we have seen in Scripture. Now, we don't say that the creeds are definitive, we say that Scripture is definitive. And so, when, you, when we explain the Trinity, which I'm hoping to do in this sermon, I'm not going to turn to creeds, I'm going to turn to Scripture. Because hopefully those Christians, those Christians got together and thought really long and hard about this, they were using scripture to come up with these statements. So, okay, yes, you will not find the word Trinity in the Bible, but we're going to say the Bible teaches this.
Okay, so let me start with our statement of faith. Um, for our church, we wrote, We believe that there is only one living and true God who has eternally existed and is the uncreated creator of all things. God is one in essence and eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each member fully possesses all the attributes ascribed to God, and each member works in harmony with each other to glorify one another, and this includes the willing submission and the fulfilling of various roles. As the only absolute and omnipotent ruler in the universe, he is sovereign in creation, in providence, and in redemption. So that's our statement of faith. Now, for the bulk of our time, I just want to work on God is one in essence and eternally existing in three persons. That's going to be like two-thirds of what we're going through today. And then at the back end, we're going to talk about how each member fully possesses attributes of God, and each member works in harmony with each other to glorify one another. We'll pick that up. So starting off, that God is what we say three in one. Now, we kind of do ourselves a disservice. We say God is three in one. Because any first grader can tell you that sounds ridiculous. And you talk to any Muslim or you hear any Muslim apologist says, that sounds impossible. Okay, so the first thing that needs to be said is God is not one in the same way that he is three. He's one in one sense and three in another sense. So we say God is one in his nature, or in our, in our statement of faith we said essence, so in his nature, but he's, but he's three in persons. Okay, so how are we going to do this? So hopefully you've turned in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. Okay. There, this is actually really helpful. So the Israelites, um, back when Isaiah was written, were up against some really tough enemies, like big armies coming in and trying to wipe them out. And big armies say, our God's better than your God. And so God in Isaiah says, oh, really? Well, let me tell you who I am and see how the other gods rate. So this is really interesting because what we're going to see in here is how God defends God. Who's God? He spells it out for us in these passages in Isaiah. We're going to look at seven of them where God says, you know, if these gods have these qualities, okay, I'll say they're God, but they don't. Okay, and what are those attributes? What are those qualities? Now, the unfortunate thing about going through Scripture this way and saying, okay, we're looking for clues about the Trinity is you kind of miss the thrust of what the passage was there for in the first place. So I think, just to be fair, I need to tell you, the reason why God is laying these things out is so that you would know who is the right one to put your faith and trust in. If you're going to turn to someone to be your Savior, then you want to turn to, to the Lord, to Yahweh. That is the living and true God. So, that is what's going on here in Isaiah chapter 40. So, Isaiah 40, verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it with silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. God says, You're, you, you saw this thing get created with gold, silver, and maybe wood, and you're saying that's God. Interesting. Verse 21, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? 
It is he who sits above the earth. It's, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, these rulers. Scarcely are they sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root, so it looks like these rulers are gaining power. And then he blows on them, and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. So God is contrasting the fact that the idols, first of all, are dependent on someone to make them, and that they're also made out of things of this world. Whereas God is completely and utterly independent of man. God does not need man to make him. In fact, he sits above the earth. He's not part of it. He made the earth. He spread out the heavens. He formed this earth. He's not part of our system because he is the one who created all things that existed. And there is only one God who could have done that. You can't claim that some newfangled God that showed up a couple years ago, like Babylon starts getting big. It's like, ooh, we have this God mucked up thing, right? They have weird names, right? It's like, yeah, we have this new God, and he's the greatest God. It's like, he just showed up five years ago. You guys made him up to make a little deity for yourselves and reinterpreted your religion to incorporate him in. I, think, I don't think so. We know when he was created. So God is the creator of all things. He's not made of this world. He's totally apart from this world. And these world superpowers that you're really afraid of right now, Israel, these men, they rise and they fall by the decree of God. He rules them. He, he is the supreme ruler over kings, over princes, over President Obama's and President Putin's and Caliph Abu Bakr of ISIS. God allows them to reign, and when he says your reign is over, that's it. Tempest comes, blows them away. It's over. Their reign ends when he says so. And then in verse 25, he asks the question again. He says, who will you liken me? Verse 25. To whom will you compare me, that I should be like him? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these things. Who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So not only has God created all the vastness of the heavens, but he knows every single one of them. He, he fixes his attention, and he can name every star. We give them numbers, because that's all we can do. We can't give them individual names, humans. And then not only does he account for all of them, but he says that he sustains them. He upholds them. Not one is missing, because he is strong in power. So God is sovereign as creator, and he's also sovereign in providence. He upholds and keeps his whole system running. If God stopped upholding our system, it would collapse in an instant. It would all be over. Okay. So God's sovereign. He's not created by anything, not by man, certainly not. Now I'll turn to Isaiah 41. Which, we're only jumping a chapter, so you may not have to turn the page. We'll look at verse 21. And we're picking out passages where God's challenging idols, like other things claiming to be God. Isaiah 41, verse 21. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them, uh, let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us, former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things that are to come. 
tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing. And your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I, I stirred up from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as mortar, as potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning, that we may know? And before, beforehand, that we might say, he is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed it, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I took, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor, whom, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. So this is speaking to God's omniscience. God knows all things. And he says, I can recall all things that have happened before, and I know what their outcome produced. And I know all things moving forward. In fact, I have proved it. I have told you that there is this one coming who's going to trample like clay. I told you first. No one else knew it. In fact, if archaeologists are right, I'll give them an if. If archaeologists are right, no one thought Babylon was going to be a great nation. Eh, probably not. They, they thought some other, Assyria was the big guy. Right? And then all of a sudden, Babylon's number one, and they're going around conquering everybody. And God says, I told you. I told you they would do this. So God is omniscient. He knows all things in the past. He knows all things that are going to come. And he's omnipotent in the fact that he claims he's the one that made it happen. I stirred his heart to go and conquer. So he doesn't just know things like, oh, I know what's going to happen. He makes things happen. He knows all things that come to pass because he makes things come to pass. I stirred up from the north, and he has come. Past tense. And he will, shall, call upon my name, future tense, and he shall trample on rulers as mortar, future tense. I am making it happen. Now turn to Isaiah 42, verse 5. So God is the creator. He's not of our world. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He knows all things. And Isaiah 42, verse 5 Thus says the Lord, who created the heavens and the, the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, and this is the point right here, who gives breath to people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. That is to say, God is the source of all life. All life. Yours, mine, God gave us life. Yet God himself is not given life. He has always possessed life. The phrase that the Bible uses about God is that God has life in himself. He's always had it. He is the uncreated creator of all things. Look at Isaiah 42, verse 8. And this is going to be especially important for us. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor praise to carved idols. God does not share his glory. He alone possesses the attributes, the qualities that make him glorious. He's not going to give that to other people or other idols. And, and it could say, this could be read a couple different ways, and they probably all work. You could say, I do not give my glory to another. In other words, I do not let anybody usurp my glory. Okay? It could be saying that. 
Or God says, I don't create some other idol and give him my glory. I'm not going to give this away. It is mine. I possess it. I am glorious for it. And I will not share this. So these idols are usurpers. They're usurpers. And I am going to crush them. And the people who worship them, they are abominations. That's what God is saying in these chapters. God does not give his glory to another. Now look at 43, Isaiah 43, verse 8. Bring out people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? So God's the omniscience thing. Let them bring their witness and prove them right. And let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declare the Lord, and my servants whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe in me and understand that I am he. Okay, so we're in verse 10, the bottom of verse 10. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Before me, no God was formed, and there shall be none after me. This is where we're getting that God is the only God. None before, none after. How many does it make? One. I am the Lord, and besides me there is no other Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declare the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work who can turn it back. And then he reinforces this idea of him being the only God, again in Isaiah 44, verse 6. He says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and Israel's Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and besides me, no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. And so, and this getting to the point of, why is God telling you this? Why is it important that you know that he's the only God? Because he is the only rock. He is the only Savior. He's the only one that you can cling to and be saved. This speaks to God's eternal nature. I'm the first. I'm the last. There's no God before or after me. God is eternal in nature. He is from everlasting and to everlasting, and he alone is God. No God was before him. No God was after him. Finally, let's look at Isaiah 46, verse 5. To whom will you liken me and make me equal? So who can be equal with God? And compare me that we, we may be alike. Those who lavish gold from purse and weigh out silvers and scales and hire a goldsmith, and he who makes it into a god and they fall down and worship, they lift their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, it stands there, it cannot move from its place. If no one cries to it, it does not answer, or saves him from his trouble. Remember this, and stand firm. Recall to mind, your, you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel, counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. 
Who will you make me equal to? There is nothing that you can say, this is equal to God. So God's point is driving home this idea again and again and again. If you cannot do these things, you're not merely a lesser God, a demigod. You're not God. If you cannot, if you're not the creator of the universe, you're not the sustainer of the universe, if you're not eternal, extending from everlasting to everlasting, always existing, possessing life in yourself. You don't need anyone to make you alive, but you make things alive. If you're not omniscient, if you don't know all things that have come and all things that are going forward and have all wisdom so no counselor could ever instruct you and like, oh, I didn't know that. If you're not omnipotent, powerful, never frustrated in your plans or thwarted, if you're missing any of these attributes that are possessed by God, then you're not God. And on the other hand, if anyone would say that they are God, that they have deity, that they are divine, then he must possess all these attributes that have already been revealed to be God's attributes. So it goes two ways. If God says, you say, I'm God, he says, do you have them? Yes or no? And if you're missing even one of them, then no, you are not God. You do not pass muster. You are not God. Okay. So God is one, because there's this one God, there's only been one God that ever was, no God was before, no God was created after. Here's what he's like now. God is three in persons. Now, theologians have noted that in the Old Testament that there are hints that God was more than just, that there were persons in the Godhead. Now, every Jewish scholar would disagree with us savagely. They would not agree with us, but I think the clues are clear. Um, the first clue would be, for example, in Genesis 1, when God's creating, and God starts having a conversation with himself. Now, we don't actually hear a lot of conversations with God himself in the Bible. Usually it's God talking to us. But here's one of the moments where God lets us in on the conversation that he had. And he starts saying, um, he said, let us, well, let us make man in our own image. Us? Our? First person plural pronoun? What? Okay. Let us make man in our own image. Who is he talking to? Why is he using these plural pronouns? Because usually when God talks, he says, I and me and myself. And now he's talking in the third person. So that would be a first clue. And this is not the only place. In Genesis 3, when God's judging man, when they, when they eat the fruit of the garden, the good and evil, God says, they have become like us, knowing good and evil. Us? There he does it again. There's a couple other places. And maybe, so there's like statements when God's talking to himself. He uses these kind of plural Plural worlds. I, I kind of want, I want, I have a, I suspect. I, I haven't gone through, I didn't have time this week. I suspect. I want to go through the whole Bible. Next time I do my reading through the Bible in a year, okay, I'm going to start over, I'm going to keep a little ledger, and any time that God sp- speaks to people, I'm going to see how many times he s- uses, like, I, me, myself. And any time that God talks to himself, he uses us, we, and see, see if it's consistent. I suspect that might be true. Then there's other moments where God kind of seems to be Two persons doing two different things at the same time. Yahweh's in heaven, Yahweh's on earth, talking, you know, talking to Abraham and sending hailstone down. Those, those could be hints. But the real reason, at the end of the day, that we believe that God is in three persons is because Jesus Christ came. That's why Christ, God's full revelation did not come until Christ came. 
He is the word who has told us about God. God unveils himself in the coming of Jesus Christ. So you see, when Jesus shows up, he says he's God. And then he speaks of his Father who's in heaven, who sent him, who is God. And then at various points in his ministry, he speaks of the Holy Spirit. But there's one point in particular, when Jesus is being baptized, when there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Father speaking from heaven about his Son. The Son looking up and seeing the Holy Spirit descending upon him. Simultaneously, these three persons. Now, if you were a good, devoted, monotheistic Jew at the time of Jesus, like all the disciples were, you would probably have no doubt in your mind that the person Jesus came from, the person up there in the heavens, that's God. That would not be a challenge for you. What's probably going to be a challenge for you is this guy right here who's saying he's God. Now, some people accepted it. Those were his disciples. Accepted it eventually. It was a dawning realization. And there's some people who utterly rejected it, saying he's making himself equal with God. That's blasphemy. Don't you know what Isaiah says? Kill him. You can't make yourself equal with God. So, is Jesus Christ God? Is he deity? It is no surprise that Jesus Christ defends his deity by demonstrating that he has all the attributes that God says he has. And he does all the works that God says God does. Uh, Turn to John chapter 5. And real quick, let me tell you about the word son. My last name is Gil. Um, Me and my brothers used to entertain the thought that we were from some great Irish clan. Gil. We were probably fishermen. (laughs) Thatch, hutch, skins to sea, dinky fish. Um, Probably the reason our last name is Gil is because at some point, well, okay, if you're born in the Gil clan, way back in the day, you were a fisherman. Why? Because your father was a fisherman, and your grandfather was a fisherman, and your great-grandfather was a fisherman. And that's what it was like in those uh, agrarian societies. If your dad was a farmer, you were a farmer. You just do what your father does. Okay? So there's none of this like, you know, lateral mobility. You can't change careers. Like, that's American. Um, so if you said, oh, I am a son of, okay, one of the things you're saying, not just like I was begotten by my father, but I do what my father does. Now, Jesus, Jesus does this. He says, I am the son of God because I do what my father does. And you, O Jews, are not the son of Abraham because Abraham believed in me. Oh, yeah, yeah, he begotten you. But you're not doing the works of your father Abraham. You are like your father, the devil, because you do what the devil does, which is reject me. Okay. So now in John 5, and that's what this this John 5 chapter is all about, is Jesus telling them that they're sons of the devil. It ends well. Well, it does not end well for them. They get mad. Okay. But listen to Jesus' argument starting in verse 19. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the Son gives life to all whom he will. The Father judges no one, but gives all judgment to the Son. 
that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from life, from death to life. Verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, hear it, life in himself, so also he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. So Jesus says, I do what my Father in heaven does. And the Father loves me and lets me do these things, and... Throughout, and then if you look throughout the Gospels, and you, the Gospels, and then even into the epistles, you start seeing that Jesus is omniscient. He knows the secret thoughts of men. Jesus is omnipotent. He is able to accomplish his will. He is eternal. He declares in Revelation 1-7 that he is the first and he is the last and there is no one besides him. He is sovereign. All creation listens to him. He says, storm stops, storm stops, because he's God. And then when he... When men come to arrest him and put him to death, they simply can put him to death because he lets them. He tells that. I'm laying down my life. You're not taking it from me. Some other key scriptures. John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. With God and was God. Colossians 2.9. In Christ the whole fullness the fullness of deity dwells bodily. So Christ possesses everything that makes God, God, and he possesses it in its entirety. Remember how God said that he will not share his glory with another? I will not share my glory with another? Jesus says in his high priestly prayer in John 17, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. He shares in that glory and they glorify each other. God does not glorify anything that's not God, and he's, the Father glorifies the Son, and the Son glorifies the Father. Remember how Isaiah said, to whom will you liken me, and whom will you make me equal to? Well, in Philippians 2, verse 6, it says that Christ was in the form of God. That means he possessed everything it meant to be God, and he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. Speaking of the fact that he would humble himself, but at the very least you say, oh, he was equal with God. So who will God, like who we say is equal with God? Well, you could say Christ is equal with God, because guess what? Christ is God. <clears throat> what about the Holy Spirit? Now, interesting. In, in um, church history, and then, actually, start in the Bible. Start with the Bible, okay? In the Bible... The Bible does not go out of its way, really, to defend the deity of the Holy Spirit. In quite the same way, it goes about to defend the deity of the Son of God. When the Son of God comes, it proves over and over again that Jesus is God, Jesus is God, and, and there's all these reasons for it. And the Holy Spirit, it, the Bible, for the most part, just assumes, okay, now, if I say the Holy Spirit is God, do you get it? The Spirit is God. And it doesn't go out of its way to defend the deity of the Holy Spirit. Rather, it assumes that the Holy Spirit is considered to be God, then it, he possesses all the attributes of what it must mean to be God. Now, because of that, kind of the great heresies that came into the church regarding the Holy Spirit were not involving his deity. 
No one ever argued against that. I'm sure some tried. Okay. But by far and away, what they argued against was that the Holy Spirit was actually a person. Because it's, he, the, they thought of the Holy Spirit much of the way that people who watch Star Wars think of the Force. It's God's power working in the universe. God's power, you know, spirits just doing things, right? But it's this impersonal force. It's kind of creeping back in our culture. This Eastern mysticism is coming into the church. It kind of looks that way sometimes. So what, the, so what the church had to do, at least with respect to the Holy Spirit, is not so much defend his deity. If you could say the Spirit is God, you've got it. So instead, they defended his personality, that he's actually a third person of the Trinity. So how do they do this? Statements of equality. So Matthew 28, go, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Interesting. Go in the name, not the names of, the name of, singular. Go in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit has a name, like, kind of like a person. And, it, and if you say that the, the Father was a person, the Son's a person, and throw the Holy Spirit in there as a third one, you, you would think it was a person, right? So it's a statement of equality. 2 Corinthians Chapter 14, verse 13, another statement of equality says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So the, the Holy Spirit can fellowship with you. It doesn't sound like an impersonal force. It seems like a personal, personal person. Fellowship. But then you could also see that the Holy Spirit was a person because of statements of personality. Fellowship would be one of them. But like in Acts chapter 5, remember Ananias and Sapphira, Ananias like they brought all the money for their house, but didn't. And, and the, Peter says, well, why did you put it in your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Oh, you can lie to the Holy Spirit? Sounds like a person, not an impersonal force. And actually, in that statement too, Peter not, not only says, not only did you lie to the Holy Spirit, but you basically lied to God. So he, right there in chapter 5, equates the Holy Spirit with God. Ephesians 4.30, we are commanded not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Grieve? Emotions must be a person. Must have feelings and emotions. Okay. So, let's put it together so far. So Everything put together. No God has ever existed before or after the one unique God. Yet, here we have a Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit demonstrating themselves to be this God. They possessed all the qualities and attributes of of this one God. So, the traditional formulation of the Trinity, the way the church said the Bible is speaking, is this. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. They're unique persons. And God has eternally existed this way. One God, three persons. Okay, so things, this does not mean, because you kind of say it both ways, this does not mean that God's made up of three parts. Like, if you take God plus the Son plus the Holy Spirit, you get, like, all the attributes that make God. So, like, God has some attributes, and then the Son has some attributes, and then the Spirit has some attributes. So, like, say, for example, the Father and the Son don't have omnipresence, but the Holy Spirit has omnipresence. Throw the Holy Spirit in, and now God has omnipresence. No. The Bible says that they possess all the attributes. All of them possess what it means to be God fully. It does not mean that God sometimes expresses himself as the Father and sometimes as a Son and sometimes as a Holy Spirit. It's called modalism. God shows up in different modes just depending on what he's doing or what mood he's in. 
know, God at various points showed up, like in baptism being one of the key moments, where his Father, Son, and Holy Spirit simultaneously. It's kind of hard to say that God is kind of presenting himself one way at certain times and another at another time. And interestingly enough, every time this speaks of God's working, when God does something, and this, I wish, this would be another sermon unto itself, so I'm not going to really go too far down this path, but whenever God does something, like all three of the persons of the Trinity are playing a part. The God the, God the Father doesn't do all of it. He, gives, he does some of it and has the Son do some of it and the Holy Spirit does some of it. And they work kind of in part, but they all possess the attributes of God. So sometimes I think that's why some people kind of got hung up with the fact that maybe God, like each individual had their own little powers, like little pieces, because they all seem to do something different, and just based on like which pieces you had, ta-da, like you do this part, you're equipped for it. But more to the point, oh well, more to the point, we'll get to it in a second. But more to the point, they're just working together in unity. The Holy Spirit works. The, the Trinity works in unity. Actually, which is my last point, which is going to go fast, don't worry. So the final point is that the Trinity is united in purpose, though varied in their roles. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and everything they do, they strive for the same purpose and for the same goals. Now, for example, God says, I glorify myself. Now, some people get really hung up with the fact that it seems very egotistical, but it's God, really not. But this might help you a little bit. If God says, I glorify myself, that is what I do. This is how they do it. The Father does not glorify himself as the Father. The Father glorifies the Son. The Son does not glorify himself as the Son. The Son glorifies the Father and exalts him and lifts him up. And the Holy Spirit, likewise, joins in. And the Holy Spirit never exalts himself. He exalts the Father and Son. And so all the members of the Trinity are like submitting to one another, loving one another, having joy with one another, and they're all glorifying each other. And God is glorifying God. In our salvation, there's very. If, if you if, when I when I first saw this, I'm like, oh, I see how it's like all how they all work together and they all do different parts. It's like on every page in the New Testament, literally every page in the New Testament, you read something like, oh, Father does this, Son does this, and the Holy Spirit does this, and they all are working together to the same end. Those statements, like in First Peter, where it says that the the Father, there we are, the Father loved us. Returning past, elected us, sent his son to save us. The son comes and redeems us through his life and death and resurrection. And the spirit comes and seals us and applies the effects of Christ's work to us by sanctifying us. They all play their part in this. So why the Trinity? Okay, so, like, I just kind of told, in a very, in like one sermon, good luck, right? trying to argue that all the members of the Trinity are this one God, this one God possessing all the attributes of God and that they're three persons, not three gods, one God. But why the Trinity? This world, creation, history, the reason why all of us are here is because of the triune God. That God, when Jesus talks about his Father, and the fellowship that they have with one another. And then the, you see in other passages where the Holy Spirit is in this as well, like in 1 Corinthians 2, there is great love, there is great joy. So the Trinity loves, enjoys, 
each other utterly. And part of their love for each other is they created in order to display themselves to creation. But get this, they ask us to join in it so that we might also experience the love and delight that they feel for each other. So as we go into communion, let's turn to John 17. In John 17, Jesus says that eternal life is not just a life that spans on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Like, just, you never die. That's not enough. Eternal life is not enough if, if it's that. Hell extends on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. But they do not have eternal life. So what is eternal life if it's not just how long you live or exists? Jesus says this is eternal life that you know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That you would know God and Jesus Christ. Now, John 17, verse 20. Here is Christ's prayer for us. I do not ask for those for these only, referring to the disciples in his ministry, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, and you and me. That they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love me, even as, even, them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. Why? To see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made it known to them, excuse me, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Some theologians said, There is a dance, a joyful dance in the Trinity. And they're asking us to join in that dance. That you might experience the love and the joy that they share with each other. Wrap your minds around that. You can't. But you will. Let's let's share in communion.
know, it's interesting, as I was uh, studying this week, it's kind of, it just dawned on me, like, how like, little excited I am about God and this relationship, as I really should be. Like, standing on, like, these great truths, and apparently they're the great truths, but then, like, your little heart, like, <laughs> you, you know. And so, praise God that, that he loved us before we first loved him. And he loved us with a great love. He showed us what that love looked like. And then just to make sure, he sends his Holy Spirit into your heart and pours out his love in you. Just to make sure you knew. So, as we take communion, I'm just asking that God would um, reawaken and continue to strengthen our affection and our love for him so that one day we can also love the Father the way the Son loves the Father and love the Son as the Father loves the Son and love the Spirit the way that God and the Son love the Spirit. So Christ, on the night in which he's betrayed, took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, This is my blood poured out for you, for remissions of sins. Do it as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord, it is glorious to know you. It is glorious to be known by you and to be loved by you. Lord, I pray that you would stir in our hearts the affections that we know that we need. Lord, I pray that we would delight in our triune God. Lord, there's things about you that are so completely befuddling at times. But I guess we should expect it that you're God. And we are not. But you reveal yourself to us, and so you're knowable. We thank you that you have given us your word, that you've sent your son, that you've sent your spirit into our hearts. And God, I pray that for each and every one of us, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've called us, or that we would not be afraid to proclaim the one true God, for you are the only Savior and the only one worthy of glory and honor and praise, and that as a people, God, that we would be one, even as you are one. Forgive us of the sins that divide us from each other. Lord, save us from ourselves. Bring us and unite us. In Christ's name and for his glory.